0: Welcome to the Air Combat Simulation Podcast, brought to you by VVR Productions. Together with content creators, mission builders, experts, and enthusiasts, we explore the comprehensive world of combat aircraft simulation.
1: Welcome, guys, to episode 14 of the Air Combat Sim uh, podcast, and today we have a pleasure to have with us uh, Casmo, um, about whom we'll speak a little bit more uh, in a moment. But first, let me introduce our well, usual suspects, so Jabbers, who's back with us. Hey, how's it going?
2: Good to be back, Ben. Been doing well, doing well. Been a little while. Work's busy. Keeping me busy. Not a lot of time for gaming in general, but uh, do what I can, so.
1: It must be horrible.
2: <laughs> it does certainly feel a lot better when I can sit down and game, uh, but my time has lately been taken up with uh, Escape from Tarkov. I'm super addicted, so um,
1: I've been sucked into the, the 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 world of Tarkov. Yeah, I've been there too, but uh, it's too kind of stressing for me, uh, and... <laughs> It's certainly that, and uh, just it's enough to watch the Viva La Dirt Leak videos, and they're very spot on about Tarkov. But it's great; it's good fun. <laughs> awesome. And Rob, hey, hey, how's it going? Uh, how are you doing, man?
3: Doing well, doing well. Just uh, <clears throat> um, hanging out. Not much uh, going on. Just a lot of, uh, uh, I would say, uh, self isolation with the family. No uh, quarantine, but. Uh, just keeping it safe.
1: You all guys are resting after Thanksgiving. Oh yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. full bellies. It's something that we in Europe can't really understand. Probably it's a big thing. It seems, Well, being
3: thankful is a, it's a, it's an important thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but So today we have a pleasure to have, um, Casmo with us. Casmo is a, his, has, has a very interesting history, uh, being as I've seen uh, first a tank commander then a Kiowa pilot and then an Apache pilot and now a DCS player and also he has his own podcast so welcome Casmo if you could say a bit more about yourself hey, about guys. what I just said.
0: Yeah no I mean that's that's it. You know just culminating in a in a YouTube personality. That's what it's all built up towards so <laughs> but uh yeah, I'm uh, uh, retiring right now, but I I did fly Kiowas and I I did fly Apaches. I don't fly them now, but um, yeah, kind of getting into the the podcast realm and telling some stories and uh, exposing, I guess you could say, the the world to some some behind the scenes stuff on helicopters. At least that's the goal. So yeah, it's it's exciting times.
1: How long have you been? How long did it take you to get from tank to uh, flying tank?
0: <laughs> um yeah i mean it's not a it's not a common career path at all um so just to kind of give you the reader's digest version essentially when you when you come into the army uh particularly as an officer you know you get branched into certain things so you're you're an infantry guy you're an armor guy you know what have you uh-huh. um i I chose armor and was a like i said a, 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 on tanks i was an m one guy and um i had always wanted to fly um it had always been a, a life stream and and goal. But uh, no one told me you had to study hard in school. So uh, that's kind of how I ended up in the Army versus something like the Air Force or something. But uh, so at some point I, I met some guys who, who flew in the Army and uh, and it, the bug just kind of got back into me. So I started looking into things and you know, long story short, I ended up just resigning my commission um, and, and became a warrant officer. So in the Army you have uh, commissioned officers and then you have warrant officers, which are kind of this in-between Enlisted and commission guys. And in aviation, they are the, the primary, what you would say, line pilots, so the, the regular pilots. Um, whereas the commission guys, if, if they're pilots, they're, they're more the leadership type role. Uh, so, yeah, so I just resigned uh, my commission as an armor guy and got accepted to aviation as a warrant officer. So it was like a $1,000 a month pay cut, which sucked, but uh, I got to do what I love. So, I went to flight school, and that takes about a year, kind of depending on what you fly. At uh, the time, I, f- I started flying Kiowas, so that was almost six months just learning the Kiowa on top of the about six months of regular flight school, and uh, and that was that. So flew Kiowas for, gosh, about 12 years, I guess, uh, before they went away, and then was one of the lucky ones who got switched over, because what, what you r- rarely hear about in the military is when an aircraft goes away, you know, it's not an automatic that, well, you know, you flew this now we're going to let you fly this a lot of go- a lot of guys get left behind um they they don't get a transition over because there's only so many you know so many so many seats when the music stops and uh so i was one of the lucky ones and, and got to transition over to to fly apache so how do
2: they how do they make that transition you know if there's 50 guys flying you know uh, helicopter one and helicopter two comes out and they say, we're going to get rid of helicopter one and there's 25 of the new ones. And, and I'm assuming there's also new pilots coming in.
0: You're right. Exactly. So it's, you know, it's fuzzy math. Um, they they did have a boarding process where, you know, they looked at records and I think part of that too, is they got to look at how much more juice can we get out of this squeeze? Right. So if you're a, you know, you're a couple of years from retirement or you're just in one of those, um, specialties that they they have enough of, then you're probably a little bit lower on the totem pole. So they do have to get that healthy mix of, you know, we need experienced guys, but just like you hit the head, the nail on the head, you got to have enough room to bring in the new guys that you can keep for the next 15, 20 years. So, Um, and it was different for the warrant officers versus the commission officers. By that time I had, had left being a warrant and was a commission guy again. So for us, it was even fuzzier math. A lot of it was timing, quite frankly. Um, but for the warrant officers, yeah, it was a lot of like, well, we need more instructor pilots. We need less maintenance pilots, you know, things like that. So it's tough. There was a lot of hurt feelings.
1: I can imagine. So, um, of course we were focused here on the air combat simulation and so the, the first probably most natural question we'd like to ask is for a person flying the real thing how do you compare that to what you experience in DCS
0: um you know DCS is in my opinion very much a fixed wing game um you know there are some some obviously some some helicopters and they're and they're good but you know I, I've flown fixed wing in real life as well it it it, it's easier right flying fixed wing is generally speaking easier because it's just a more stable platform a helicopter is inherently unstable um computers don't like instability so trying to make something act unstable inside of a stable system is incredibly difficult and just a little peek behind the curtain i've had with you know working alongside polychop uh i I see that now like how much harder it is like i already knew it was hard and now i know that it's 10 times harder than i thought it was so for me um you know and i I think i may have talked to you in the past about this bd and certainly some others but you know when it comes to simulation versus a game you know to me a lot of that simulation really comes from what's going on in your mind and not so much what's happening on the screen um because anyone can kind of create a situation where okay we got to push this button to make this widget come on and and we've got to turn left you know do this to turn left and things like that it's how you sort of operate the 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 game essentially that makes it a simulation so you know i think dcs and i think il2 are great um components to make simulation a thing but you've got to go into it with the right mindset Um, but if you're talking specifically, like from a module standpoint, you know, the helicopters, some of them are better than others. In fact, I I jumped in like all of them today. I just wanted to fly around and kind of just see how things felt. And, you know, some of them feel pretty good. And then some of them are kind of mushy or, you know, kind of like, well, that doesn't seem right. And again, it's just really hard because a helicopter has got so many factors you know weighing on it depending on is it hovering is it flying forward is it fast is it slow um that it's, it's really hard for developers to nail it
2: what what uh what's your go-to in dcs out of the, the four helicopters we have not not any of the ones that are coming but but the four that we have with we have the huey the mi8 the gazelle and the uh, ka-50 right
0: yeah, yeah. The K-50 is, um, which is funny because six months ago, I would have told you I hate that thing. Um, <laughs> it, it is it is, not for the faint of heart. You know, it is not something that if you don't know anything about helicopters, you're going to pick that up at the store and, and be comfortable with. Um, and it was funny. It took me to fly the Apache in real life to understand the K-50. And I, and I, I put a video about this a long time ago where, you know, it's got this complicated trimmer system. Which was not unlike something the Apache had, but when I flew Kiowas, we didn't have that, you know. So I didn't understand it. I was just flying a normal helicopter, and and I and I bought the K50 years and years ago, and I just I hated it. I was like, this is garbage, and I just never never played it again. And then after flying Apaches, I went back to it, and I was like, oh, it's kind of like this system that we had in Apache, and so it made a lot more sense. Um, I don't think that the community. And I'm not like saying that I'm some sort of savior to the thing, but I don't think before me the community had anyone that was trying that could really articulate that. And maybe I haven't probably articulated it as well as I can. Um, but I think that I think that I, the more I've talked to some people, they're like, "Oh, now I get what you're saying," or "Now I understand what you mean." Um, but that is definitely my go-to because not only is it you know you can, you can kill stuff with complicated weapon systems, which is awesome. Um, it feels weighty right so what i mean by that is it feels like it has some momentum it feels like it's really in the world versus some of the others where they're they're just a little lighter than i think they probably would be in real life or they just don't kind of respond to some of the control inputs the same you know And, and it's too easy to you know people point the gazelle and say, "Oh, the gazelle can fly upside down well you know that was a long time ago it can't anymore at least not that i've tried um but the Gazelle is a very light aircraft and that's very hard to replicate because very light aircraft just operate just incredibly differently. Um And, you know, and the Gazelle is lighter than the Kiowa and the Kiowa was a squirrely aircraft. So, um, you know, you got to give these things a little bit of a, you know, you just got to understand what you're getting with the, with the module.
2: Let's, well, let's back up to the Kiowa, uh, not the Kiowa, the Gazelle. So, um, out of all the four helicopters that are out there, I would say the K50 for me is uh, a lot of fun, and I do go to that often. But recently, in the past maybe six months, I usually get in the Gazelle, and I think I think personally I like the fact that it's fast and nimble, and um, you know I don't I don't know how well it's simulated. It to me, there's some aspects of it just visually that don't seem right. But that all that aside. Um, I like the the whole idea of kind of, uh, you know, playing a helicopter sniper, you only, you only got four bullets, right. You got to make them count. And, uh, you know, you got to get pretty, pretty damn close to, to be effective. Um, with the gazelle itself doesn't, isn't there also some aspects of it that are just different from the other three in DCS, like something about the rotor? Um, the rotor itself is different, right?
0: Yeah, the rotor turns the other way. I I say the other way. It doesn't turn the way that I'm used to, um, Mm -hmm. which certainly threw me off because I'm putting the wrong pedal in and I'm wondering why I'm spinning. You know, Um, the problem—I must say—the problem what the Black Shark has done for sort of the game—it's a single-pilot aircraft, which is incredibly rare when you think about a combat helicopter. In fact, I really can't think of any others. and so you're somewhat spoiled because you can do everything you need to do versus the Gazelle, which I, I have never flown the Gazelle like in a combat scenario in DCS because I, I just haven't been able to sit down and learn it all. But it's a two person aircraft and it's it for a reason, you know, um, there's a lot going on in both seats. So uh, there are some differences in, you know, just mechanically and then obviously the weapon systems are, are you know, pretty unique. Um, I haven't delved too much into them, but, but yeah, the Gazelle, and it's, and it's, a, like I said, it's a light aircraft, so it is very squirrely, and I agree with you, there are some, certainly some visuals to it, and, and even Polychop has admitted, like, yeah, hey, there's some screwed up things to it, and what they're trying to do is, you know, get the, get the Kiowa right, so that, and they're learning, like, they've basically restarted their process, is the way that I understand it, in, in how that they're creating the flight model, and then once they get all this thing wired, you know, wired tight, they're going to go back and use that those properties learned and fix the gazelle. Um, you know, the problem with the gazelle from a development standpoint is it is used all over the world, and there's different versions and variants, and and you know, this you could fly it in this country and go to this country, and they have a different way of doing things. They have a different version of the aircraft, and so when you're trying to get subject matter experts to agree on something feels right or feels wrong, that's very hard to do. With the kiowa you've got you know i think there's like nine or ten of us we all flew the same kiowa you know and and really no one else was flying it so it's a little bit easier to figure out that hey that doesn't that isn't right that doesn't feel right um so so hopefully once they get all that sorted out the the gazelle will will get some love
2: Gotcha. yeah that'll be that'll be cool it'd be fun to learn all over again i gotta <laughs> say your your video uh that you have uh i think it was your review video. Yeah. uh where you had some recommended settings uh mm-hmm. for the gazelle for the saturation on the um stick and the, and yeah. the uh, collective um those helped immensely and that is much more enjoyable
0: <laughs> oh yeah absolutely uh, and and those came from an actual gazelle pilot um who's in the uh, my discord and um yeah. and those are what he put in and i agree with you like i tried to fly it before those oh, it unflyable this a
2: yeah it's totally unflyable it's the uh, squirliest thing i've ever you you give it a little bit of a uh, right cyclic and it just flips over <laughs>
0: yeah or you barely touch the the collective and you're, you're right in the stratosphere. yeah you're,
2: you're 200 feet high
0: and again it's it's something where if you if you solely flew that like you could probably get used to that and be okay with it because people have but right. yeah if you're like me and, and probably like you you know you're kind of jumping around between modules yeah right. un- undoable
2: yeah that that's one of the other things i think a lot of people maybe realize you know in the back of their head but not really is you know you jump from four different helicopter variants in DCS that all fly completely different. Yeah. And, you know, they all feel a hundred percent different from the, the last one. And, and that's probably slightly true in real life. Whereas a plane is kind of, yeah, you know, it, it always, it always kind of does the same thing.
0: Yeah. At its heart. Well, and not only that, again, like, like I said, the, you're talking about aircraft that are made by completely different designers in different countries. Um, you know like i said some of them blades turn to the left some of them turn to the right and so that completely changes the way that you're going to apply pedal inputs and if your muscle memory is a certain way you know you got to completely relearn how you do stuff so yeah it's it's a tough variety of aircraft in in DCS when it comes to helicopters
1: yeah, I'm not sure I, I necessarily agree with you guys because for me, all the helicopters, they crash exactly the same. That's what <laughs> we do in DCS. <laughs> that's the skill. <laughs> they, they do burn the same. <laughs> yeah, but having said that, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to Kiowa and uh, I, I really want to do a campaign for a helicopter. And we've spoken about it, Casmo, uh, that we will do it together at some point yeah. when we can. Yeah. So, so looking forward to that. Uh, I've, I've I've listened a lot of uh, to, to a lot of books, uh, mostly from Vietnam era, uh, the Huey pilots, and it's 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 just incredible when you listen to the stories they have. Um, and again, I've said that before in this podcast many times. I'd love to have the Vietnam map to to be able to play there. Um, but uh, what I'm getting at is, uh, I wanted to ask you. It's uh, probably not very much related to CS now, but. but li- reading all the books from the Vietnam era and seeing the, let's say the casualty rate that there were about 7,000 helicopters that were destroyed and like 2,000 pilots that went down or died in, uh, during the Vietnam War. But then when you read to the bo- read the books, there's lots and lots of stories where they went down with with, with their aircraft and that they would, be completely fine or just slightly wounded. So how 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 is it really with, with helicopters? I know the autorotation, all that stuff, but how survivable it is in general?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean it's it, it depends. I mean that's that's the bottom line. Um, and you're right. You know, in Vietnam, it's interesting because helicopters today are much more technical. Obviously, you know, there's a lot more crammed into them. You know, back then they were a lot of times a little more than an engine and a fuselage. Um, you know, with maybe some guns strapped onto it or something. And so, you know, there are stories, certainly, in fact, the book Low Level Hell, you know, it talks about a situation where a guy uh, crashed in an uh, OH-6, got picked up, they took him back to the base, he grabbed another aircraft, flew back out, got shot down in the exact same area, flew back, got another one, and came back out to the same battle. Um, You could, you know, as long as you survive, you could do those sort of things because the aircraft were were somewhat expendable, you know, like they weren't nearly as expensive as they are, you know, Apache is, you know, 40, 50 million dollars. As far as survivability for the crew, you know, there's just so many things. As long as you can keep the, you know, the spinny side up and you don't hit the ground with too much force and each aircraft is different at how much um, it'll, you know, the, the seats will, what they call stroke, so that'll absorb some impact uh, in, a, in a vertical fashion. You know, it's really the sort of lateral hits and things that'll that'll really jack the body up. But if you can kind of come straight down, and as long as you can arrest that rate of descent enough, to, that the seat stroke will will absorb some of that. And of course, aircraft like the Apache, uh, you know, it's designed to collapse on itself. Um, for instance, the gun is designed. There's actually like a cavity between uh, the pilot and the the front seater. And the the gun is designed to collapse up into that cavity so it doesn't go, you know, basically crush into the the co-pilot. So these aircraft are built with survivability in mind to some extent, but again, if, you know, it it just depends on what type of damage you take. And of course, can't eject, so yeah, it's tough.
2: Would you say there's a casually, casual, I can't say it, what's (laughs) wrong with me? What's wrong with me today? Uh <laughs> would you say the number of uh accidents or mishaps or or even getting shot down and stuff is higher than than fixed wing like there's got to be a r- ratio difference too do we have more aircraft uh you know fixed wing aircraft versus helicopters i don't know the answer to that so yeah. uh uh given given that ratio is it higher on one side or than the other
0: i i don't know i would tell you that i i suspect helicopters have a higher ratio and, and to your point of how many aircraft do we have, so I'll put it to you this way, the the, the rule, uh, you know, when you get into like joint doctrine, the rule says that whoever has the preponderance of aircraft, that is to say, which branch of the military service has more aircraft than the others, shall be the um, the joint air uh, forces commander, right? So, so if the Air Force had more jets than anybody else, he is the de facto joint air commander for you know, whatever, Operation Iraqi Freedom. The Army always has more aircraft than any of the other services. We never take that role on though, because that's not like our bag. Like we don't have the command and control that the Air Force and the Navy does. But my point is there's always more Army helicopters than there are Air Force and Navy jets flying around. Um, I would also say that we get shot at a lot more because we're closer to where the action is. Right. So, you know, if you look at the opening stages of Iraq, Afghanistan, you look at Kosovo, you know, that's when you've got your large systems, your SAMs and things like that. So of course the, the fixing guys are in a lot more uh, you know, peril from, from threats. But once that stuff kind of gets taken off the board, you know, if you're at 10, 12,000 feet, no one's, no one's going to bother you up there. And so at this point now you're, you're, your ratio, your threat is based solely on maintenance issues, or you know, you know, some sort of crew situation. You know, you, for whatever reason, you pass out, or you know, something happens to you. Um, but you're not getting shot down at that point. For the helicopters, it's a constant because um, you're in that envelope where some dude with a rifle can shoot you. I mean, I've been shot. You know, I mean, it 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 can happen at a moment's notice when you're not expecting it. Um, I don't know of any. A unit that didn't deploy, that didn't get aircraft shot up a lot, you know, some some aircraft more than others, but um, I, I can't think of really any unit that deployed when things were going on, you know, like like consistently combat operations where aircraft didn't get shot up and and somebody either got shot and killed or shot and wounded. Um, so it happens a lot. Now aircraft actually being brought down and destroyed and you know total loss and and, and loss of the crew not nearly like it was back in, in Vietnam. Um, but I also think that they still were dealing with a lot more, uh, surface to air threats back in Vietnam. And, and I, you know, I I don't have any data to back that up, but it seems like you hear a lot more about larger caliber guns and, and, and more complex systems than, than we saw throughout the eternity, if you will, of Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, early Iraq, you still had a lot of shoulder fired missiles out there. That seems to have waned. Like I can't even remember the last time I heard about somebody getting shot at with a shoulder-fired missile. Um, it's generally small arms or, you know, crew serve like weapons like a 50 cal or something like that.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I guess that's a uh, in, in tongue-in-cheek where your your low-level hell server name came from. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah well I mean, and ex- I mean and it is inspired from the book um yeah. but it but it is inspired more from that from from that is where we operate i mean guys I, i've been shot at taking off you know like that's crazy <laughs> like like the asphalt on the runway kicked up and my left seater and i are looking at it like what's wrong with the asphalt you know we didn't even it didn't even register that somebody was actually shooting at us because we hadn't even left the dagum you know runway yet so right right um uh so that was kind of the environment that we were used to living in all the time and it wasn't uncommon to come back and, and do in your post flight and be like oh there's a there's a bullet hole here. You know, a lot of times you didn't even know you got shot up. So, yeah, it was not uncommon.
1: And I guess it's still uh probably not, not the Apache but for Kaloa the, the AK47 or 74 can be really quite deadly if it hits an important element, right? I mean, it,
0: it's so when i I was shot in 2006 like like physically i was shot in the aircraft and my aircraft took 13 to 15 rounds depending on how you 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 counted the holes uh from a uh a pk so a crew serve type weapon 762 armor piercing in fact i got the bullet here somewhere near me um it took a ton of damage uh it took rounds that Took away parts of the uh, the the engine, so compressor blades were actually found in the combustion section of the engine. They don't belong there. Um, the self sealing fuel cell stopped being self sealing because it had so many holes in it. Um, my chin bubble in front of my feet was blown out. One of the round that hit me actually went through the collective uh, that my right seater was was holding, and luckily it didn't go through his hand. It took a ton of damage. People thought we were on fire because stuff was spewing out of the back. It was probably just fuel vaporizing. Um, they can take a lot of damage, um, a surprising amount of damage, because the reality is there's only so many things that are what you would, I guess, you could say, mission essential. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, the big one that I was always afraid of is really the tail rotor and and the the uh, you know, the connection between the tail rotor and the engine, because that's just a long, you know, series of, of pipes essentially connected together that are just spinning. And, and they are rated to take a certain amount of damage, but it kind of depends on how, well, where did the damage hit and how bad is the turning going to, you know, shear that apart. Um, so they they are more survivable than I think people realize. Even something like a Kiowa that was essentially a flying tin can. Um, the Apache, of course, is is armored in, in certain areas, uh, particularly around the the cockpit. You know, you always hear about the A ten with the the titanium bathtub, but we didn't have a, a titanium bathtub, but it was, was certainly up armored around the cockpit uh, and around vital systems. So so yeah, they can take a licking. It's just it you know it all it takes is that one golden BB that's gonna you know separate this this hydraulic line or, you know, something like that. And aircraft like the Apache have a lot of redundancy built into them. I uh, just, just a ton.
2: Just real quick on that topic of taking a lot of damage. I guess that's kind of a simism for us then that we don't get to see. Cause it feels like a lot of those, uh, those helicopters are in DCS are, are pretty brittle and maybe yeah. <laughs> some of them are supposed to be more than others, but um, yeah.
0: Y- yeah, absolutely. And, and I think too, and this is why, helicopters and dcs also have a hard time it's not just that they sometimes can be brittle it's that the ai is really good you know what i mean like right like the right. ai is really good at at really yeah. a long range like i'm sorry i don't think bmp's can shoot basically straight up <laughs> I was you to bring that i was yeah. gonna bring exactly right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> They're snipers i mean i'll fly around an a10 and be scared of bmp's like yeah i mean right. they're just out of control um but yeah dcs doesn't do a great job in, in modeling that that ability to absorb damage because again it's very difficult to to model i mean how far down sure. the rabbit hole can you model something to say well you got hit in the tail okay that doesn't mean the tail comes off you know right, versus right. well it did actually hit the spar of the tail that holds it together and it just came apart so yeah it's it's tough DCF yeah it'll is be a very tough environment for helicopters
2: it'll be interesting to see if um the new damage model stuff they're adding for world uh, the world war ii stuff moves over to helicopters i know they plan to bring it to uh the more modern stuff but mm. but the helicopters in general i'd imagine i mean just based off what you're saying um that you know it's already hard to model
1: yeah
2: you know an an imperfect or not imperfect how did you phrase it you phrased it as a an unstable platform in a stable platform yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know and then yeah. you're, you're going to add more instability to it that will be interesting
0: yeah, well, it kind of makes me think of uh, Flying Circus in IL-2, where, you know, you can have the the control cable to your ailerons get shot out, you know, and things like that. That's that's essentially what the level of damage model that you're looking for with a helicopter. Uh, and then it depends on which helicopter, right? Because the K-50 has a lot more control systems, you know, computer guidance type systems inside of it versus... You know, a, a, a gazelle, or or, or well, I assume a gazelle. I don't. I don't really know how a gazelles put together, but you know, just push tubes and and rods and stuff. So, yeah, I don't envy the job that they have to to make that stuff work. Right.
1: Right. Chambers, did you just call DCS's table platform? <laughs>
2: I'm going to take a hard pass on that one. <laughs>
0: he wasn't talking about open beta. So. <laughs>
1: <clears throat> what I wanted to ask you is that about the, the tail rotor being shut off or destroyed. So th- that's where I guess the K50 shines, not having it. And how do you, in general, how do you see that um, kind of, how to call it, way of, of building helicopters? So instead of the uh, tail rotor doing this, spin, the rotor spinning in different directions uh, to, to, like K50 has.
0: Yeah, I'll pass on that. Um, like, I wouldn't want to fly that. Like, you're trading <laughs> one problem for another, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and and I was like, well, I mean, there's got to be some reason for. It. Maybe it's mechanically easier, and they're like, no, it's absolutely not mechanically easier. Um, I, I don't want to say it's a gimmick, but it's it's certainly testing something that 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 brings value, but the tail rotor unless you're hovering or you're at a very slow airspeed the tail rotor is really not doing that much for you um so if you lose your tail rotor it's not like it's the end of the world it's just it just co- complicates how you're gonna how you're gonna land um as long as you keep your forward airspeed up and i, I want to say with the kiowa it was i think it basically told you stay above 40 knots and below 40 knots you're going to lose control uh, of the aircraft and so you You would just have to get somewhere where you had the ability to do a you know basically roll uh, 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 a run on landing is what we call it because we had skids you know so we didn't have wheels um so you would just maintain above 40 knots and just basically slide onto the ground um with the apache it was a faster airspeed Uh, i think the book said stay above 100 knots uh, for as long as you could, essentially, and then as you got closer to the ground, you would sort of modulate your throttle, which would, uh, you know, decrease the amount of torque coming out of the engine, and you would just kind of basically decrease the amount of torque in the engine, which would let you start descending and slowing down, and then you would just kind of roll onto the ground. So you'd probably hit the ground. I don't, know, you know, 60, 40 knots, something like that. Um, but losing your tail rotor is not the automatic. I'm going to spin and, and crash and die if you're out of hover. Yep, it's it's not a good time, and you're going to go into the ground.
2: Now the KA50 doesn't have a retreating blade stall though because of it, right?
0: You, you know, it's funny. I, was, I, I don't think know, it out. It, it, to some extent, I'm sure it does, but I'm sh- and, and again, I'm not smart on coaxial and how it works. It must have something because think about it. What happens when you get too fast in a KA50? And it starts beeping at you right 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 so well i
2: think that's because the blades slap each other
0: <laughs> right exactly so that's what i'm but, saying you've traded one yeah. problem for another it's like oh i, yeah, I don't have yeah, retreating yeah. Blade stall. I just have blade mesh you know which i'd rather have retreating blade stall because i could probably recover from that i can't recover from i don't have blades anymore which i guess is why they gave me an ejection seat so right. <laughs> no the the future if you will of helicopters um is to make them not helicopters right so that's why you've got all this tilt rotor stuff um you know, you had the the, the designs that had the pr- the pusher props essentially, where it was like a you know backwards facing prop that um, w- would push you through. But but you're right. I mean, helicopters kind of reach retreating blades stall is kind of that point that um, it's that threshold where this is this is why helicopters can only go so fast.
2: Right, right. And that and that just for the listeners, the retreating blade stall is when. Uh, One side of the blade is going obviously faster than the other, and it and it you lose lift on one side and you end up spinning the you end up going into a spin, right? Not not a not a but a roll, not a yeah, not a yaw moment, but yeah. So if your
0: blade is on the moving from right to left, essentially your right side is advancing into the into the wind and it's, it's creating a ton of lift, right? Your other side is not, and it just yeah, just. You hear fighter pilots, I guess, talk about departing the aircraft departing. Right. I think I think that would probably be the best way to describe it. If you're a fixman guy, is at that point you lose, and you'll get some indications. Like you're going to know it's happening. You're going to start feeling it in the aircraft. Um, and plus, too, if you're a smart guy, you you know what numbers not to exceed. And you just avoid right. it. Right.
2: I think uh, if anybody wants to try it in DCS, you can just get up in the Gazelle, climb to altitude, and then put yourself in like a 30 degree dive. And uh, when you start rolling, try to get out of it. (laughs) Right.
0: And I'll tell you, too, I was talking to somebody the other day, another Kiowa guy. You know, we had some limits of saying, well, don't go over this airspeed. A lot of times those airspeeds are not based on a reality of the aircraft can't do it. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the Kiowa was like 120... 125 knots was our, our VNE, our velocity never to exceed. You know, I've, I've been well over that airspeed because I thought someone was shooting at me. Um, right. and I think that VNE was actually based on the windshield. Like it was like, well, above this airspeed, the windshield may, may collapse on you. Oh, It's, it's not that the rotor system is going to fly off or something like that, you know? Um, so there's a lot of things that, are put in there as, as limitations that the aircraft can well exceed the limitation. You know, the Kiowa could only roll 60 degrees. Well, I can tell you I've done 90 degrees and it survived. Um, cause you, you do things in combat that, you know, you just, you don't want to do them, but you got to do them. Um, and, and the aircraft will survive. It's just, you don't want to continuously try it because <laughs> eventually your right. luck may run out. But yeah,
2: I think that's a, a problem with, um, I don't know if I want to use the word problem. Uh, Challenges. But I'm gonna a challenge, I guess. Yeah, with with the community in general, though, as far as yeah. uh, you know, you have a bunch of people who don't actually fly the real thing, yeah. And you know, all all they have to go on is the book, and so when they, right. you know, a new module comes out, and it's so, a well, the the book says this, you, you and you guys didn't actually do that, and and then and then we have the other side of the spectrum is there are people like you who are subject matter experts and people who've done it and say well you can so do you put it in the sim or do you not you know what i mean right well and, and, it, and that becomes a big issue and you end up with with what we call the the rivet counters uh you know <laughs> who are who are basically going off of a picture a, you know a p- written picture this is what it's supposed to do this is what it's supposed to look like and then we get into these these silly arguments
0: well and let me add to that you're a developer and you've got to develop what do you develop what do you do based solely off what the book says or do you listen to the subject matter experts, and which ones do you listen to, right? So that's the other challenge that um, that makes it even more complicated because you, you do have those rivet counter uh, players, and and then it becomes a back and forth with developers. Yeah, and we kind of ran into this with the Kiowa. You know, th- they gave us the the recent build, I guess it's about a month or two ago, and they were like, "Hey, can you test out the hovering?" and and we were like, well, this this doesn't seem right, you know. And they're like, yeah, but from the book, this it says that at this airspeed, at this altitude, this is how much torque you should be pulling. And we're like, yeah, but we never looked at that at that at that time of flying the aircraft. We didn't we didn't pay attention to you know whatever that number was. It didn't matter. And so what it, essentially what they're saying is, you know, the engineers had to put something in the paperwork, but we never used that part of the data sheet to factor anything so it's like sure the numbers may be correct i'm just telling you that that's not what it looks like or feels like when i go through that portion of the flight regime and right. so it, it's it's super complicated and i think i think you've kind of hit the nail on the head that people have to understand that it is not just science it's art mm-hmm. um and that's true for wiggling sticks and it's true for building things like there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance there and it is frustrating, especially the Gazelle, you know, I think brought a lot of that to to the forefront with people and they're like, well, you know, the aircraft can't do this. I'm like, well, why would you try anyway? You know, like I, I would never try to fly the Gazelle upside down, so I would never know that it could fly upside down. So um, I don't know, it's it's challenging and I don't think you'll ever reach the end of those types of arguments. They're always going to yeah. be there.
2: And that's, that's the hard part, I think, you know, given any system with, uh, the ability to develop a flight model, you're going to develop it within the constraints of how it was used. And, um, you know, the the outer edges of that flight model are always going to do something goofy because no one, no one knows what it's supposed to do. And, and granted, maybe a helicopter wasn't supposed to fly upside down. But then yeah. again, why did anybody try it? Yeah, you know, nobody probably tried to do that in testing before it was released. And then, you know, (laughs) the community gets we see the same thing, um, um, I think, with every module. I mean, like Kepler just released uh, the F-14A and someone found that if you fly it at like, well, I don't even know if I should say this before it's patched, But if you (laughs) if you fly it at 50,000 feet or above 50,000 feet or 55,000, whatever the whatever the number is, you can accelerate to like Mach 3. Uh, awesome. you know, maybe even higher. Um, and I think it's because you know there's no data to support anything above fifty thousand feet, and so maybe right. the flight model was wacky up there, and they have to address it now, and they will, and it'll get fixed. But that's you know, funny. just like the just like the gazelle, it it you can't fly it upside down anymore. But you know, no, why would anybody try that in testing? I guess
0: uh, it, right. I mean, and for all I know, maybe the Kiowa could fly upside down. I just never tried it. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. Yeah, it's it's frustrating, but well, and that's maybe fine.
2: Since you have access to the Kiowa, let me let me just say maybe you should try flying it upside down yeah. once before it's released. Yeah. So we don't have that
1: issue. Yeah.
0: Hey guys, have you? Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point.
1: <laughs> I think the General Air Force should hire more DCS players as pilots. I mean, they can they can air to air refuel upside down, or they can land an A ten right. on a on a carrier or on Tarawa or or on a yeah. destroyer. Doesn't matter. So I think these are very talented people. <laughs>
2: I think within the community, you will find people who think that they could do that stuff in real life just because they have to. So, you know,
0: yeah, yeah hey, it's well, yeah. Yeah, you know,
2: if you uh, if you play Halo, you're
3: you know, that translates directly to real life. Damn right.
0: Absolutely. No, I was gonna say that, that just goes back to my earlier comments about game versus simulation. I, I think it's all in the mind. Um, you know, ED calls DCS a game. I call it a game it's, oh, it's a, a game you know yeah but it's a simulation if you if you go through all the other widgets because being a being a pilot and being a combat pilot it's not just about wiggling sticks and pushing buttons it's how you communicate it's how you employ the aircraft it's how right. you interact with things and you can simulate all that stuff quite well and you know srs is a great tool for that and just having good dudes to play multiplayer with you can you can absolutely simulate the crap out of some stuff with dcs but um but yeah just on its face well i can land on a carrier awesome i bet you can't in real life right you
2: know right yeah i i got into an argument about this about a week ago uh I called it a game, and you know the people yep. came out of the woodwork oh, it's a simulation, but like at its face value, it is a game yeah it is in the simulation genre and can be used as a simulator but right. but you're right, it is hundred percent a game, like the, people play it however they want that's right first, and then if you want to play it as a simulation, you can
0: Yep.
2: so um you you were Apache pilot and uh is it true that Apache pilots can swap pilot for gunner and, and like you, you have to get qualified in both, correct?
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah. And this is one of those great misnomers. Every, every aircraft, all the pilots are the same. And what I mean by that is the the left seat and the right seat in a Blackhawk, they're the exact same pilot, the front seat and the back seat in Apache, they're the exact same pilot, meaning they've they've gone through the exact same qualification um when you go through flight school to learn how to fly a kiowa or apache you sit both seats you learn both seats and the systems um it's not like in the fighter world where you got the Wizzos and all this other crap it is you're a rated army aviator qualified in a age 64 echo model um so so yeah absolutely you sit in a front seat different communities do things differently as far as which seat you spend more time in based on your rank or your hour level or you know who you are um i'll uh, so for a kiowa in a a 64 it was kind of the same um your newer guys you would typically put them in the front seat in the apache and the left seat of the kiowa um that's the the systems guy essentially and they both have a set of controls they can fly the aircraft from that spot um but their primary fo- primary focus is using the systems and the sensors and all that stuff um and then as they get a little bit you know a little bit more experienced then they may spend more time in the back seat or the right seat respectively um but yeah totally interchangeable there is zero difference between the two of them and a lot of times it's based on um, the pilot in command is, the, is really the one that makes a decision. So one of those guys is what we call the PC. Um, and, and that is a guy who can be uh, empowered to own the aircraft. So let's say that, you know, Jabbers, let's say you're a brand new guy at a flight school. We put you through all your unit training and you are what we consider readiness level one. You are a PI, a pilot. I have been in the unit for a while. I've got some, some hours under my belt and I'm a PC. You can fly with me. Um, let's say, Rob, you show up as a new guy with Jabbers. You're also a PI. You two can't fly together. One of you has to fly with a PC. Um, Let's say BD, he's also a PC. He and I can fly together all day long, and we'll just fight over who gets to be the actual PC and log it in our our, uh, logbooks. But other than that, there's no special qualifications between the two. One is just a... The PC is just somebody that's been evaluated as having a level of maturity and a knowledge of the aircraft that you can comfortably say, okay, at 10 o'clock tonight, you two are gonna go fly this, you know, $50 million aircraft all by yourself and go do a training flight. And if something happens to the aircraft, I can trust you to make the right judgment calls both within regards to safe safety of the crew and the aircraft, but also how are you gonna communicate with, you know, air traffic control, how are you gonna Uh, handle airspace issues you know all those things you are alone and unafraid you know and you can make good decisions
2: so um i guess when you have your unit or whatever and you have your assigned aircraft this is let's say you're you're deployed Mm -hmm. do you let's say pi aside Mm -hmm. uh everybody's qualified to do whatever What goes into the decision making for who you get to fly with? Because uh, I'd imagine at some point, especially if you're, you know, put in situations that, you know, things need to happen. You need to trust that other guy. So you got to kind of build up a relationship, right? Or is it kind of you're flying with this guy today and tomorrow you might be flying with somebody else?
0: Typically, the way we did it every time I was deployed and and when I was a commander, I I, I definitely had it this way is um, you would be set up. You would be set up in teams, right? So a team would be four or maybe five people so that you had like that fifth guy was a floater. And, you know, that way everyone gets a day off type thing. You know, it kind of depends on your manning and, and what you, what you're responsible for. But let's say we had four guys on a team. um, The four of us, let's say it could be that, you know, tomorrow BD and I fly together and then the next day we'll rotate and I'll fly with Jabbers. You know what I mean? Um, And so when you do that and you're doing it every single day, um, everyone gets comfortable with with how the other operates in the cockpit um and if and it, but it also keeps it fresh where you don't get complacent cuz that's one of the things that'll get you is if i'm so used to you doing it a certain way i get somewhat laxadaisical about well i don't need to do that because he always does that well then eventually when I fly with somebody else, well, they don't always do that same thing. And if I'm not doing it, then no one's doing it. And so by kind of rotating it around, you keep it fresh, but you're still in a small enough group that I'm still flying with the same guy three, four times a week. And then, and inside of that, we'll probably switch seats. So, hey, if I flew left seat yesterday, I'll fly right seat today. I'll fly left seat tomorrow. You know what I mean? Um, So you just kind of mix it up that way. But yeah, it's, it's, Because of our schedule when we're deployed, it's it's uncommon to really fly with a bunch of different dudes because typically you're at least linked up with a certain time schedule. And it's always going to be the same four or five, six dudes that are that are also on that same time schedule.
2: That's pretty cool. Does does the person flying, are they the only ones that get the flight hours or do you? both get flight hours if you No, you, you both, both log the-, the hours. Yeah, yeah, you're
0: both at you're both qualified current at a set of controls, so you both get hours. It's just a matter of who gets to log the pilot and command hours. And so typically by the end of a deployment, almost everybody's a PC um because you know, the newer guys have now they've flown a couple hundred hours in combat, they they go on a PC check ride, they're they're good to go. Um and a lot of times in that situation like if I'm a senior PC and I'm flying with you, you know i may be on the flight schedule as the pc in order to get it approved um but we get done on like hey man you know you, you log the pc time you know because you, you need it and i don't um at least if you're a good dude that's what you do if you're a jerk right. don't. <laughs> um uh but yeah and and then too it also depends on the mission so for instance i i was never um hung up on flying one seat or the other but if it was like a deliberate mission let's say we were doing um support to like special operations or something like we would do a lot of stuff with the australian sas and a lot of raids and stuff at night i would almost exclusively when i was a commander i would almost exclusively sit in the left seat of the kiowa because i didn't have to fly i could focus on talking on a radio using the sensors and writing stuff down and, and making big brain decisions, which is harder to do in the right seat. I can do it, um, but, but it's harder to do. And I'm having to rely on the other guy to write stuff down for me and crap like that. So a lot of times I would just make the other guy be my chauffeur and just, you know, fly me around. Um, but if it was just, I'm out just cruising and nothing's going on. it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll sit right seat one day and left seat the next day.
1: I want to ask you, uh, I know we spoke about Ed Mace's book, Apache. I know you haven't read it yet, but um, he, he, There uh, was talking about this monocle that you use in apache uh, for targeting for the gun and lots of other stuff and he said basically that um he was able at some point after some time flying uh, to (laughs) to kind of look at something look look through the monocle with his right or left eye and then look at something else with this other eye and he used that trick later to scare his girlfriend or whatever because he basically he <laughs> could use eyes and det- detach them and it, it sounded completely weird or crazy to me have you heard about it? Is it true?
0: I, uh, I hate saying that I don't believe somebody <laughs> I I don't know how that would be a thing. Um, so the monocle, and it's it, if you've ever seen the movie Firebirds, which uh, God bless you if you have, um, you know, it kind of addresses the complexity, if you will, of this of this eyepiece, which is not that complex at all. All it is is a HUD on a monocle that sticks in front of your right eye. Um, so instead of having a HUD that's in front of me, like in a fifty, it's it's everywhere I look. Um, and it fills up my entire view, and so it's not a matter of looking at two different things or trying to compare different things. You just you just have a HUD in your eye. Um, if you close your right eye, the HUD disappears. You know, <laughs> um, where it gets challenging with the with the sixty four is when you use the what we call the Penvis, the pilot's night vision system. So if you've ever looked at the very front of the Apache, you've got those weird little bug-eye-looking things. Well, you've got the two that are underslung, the big one. That's called the TADS. the a Target Acquisition Designation System. And then you've got this little bug-eye-looking thing on top, and that's the Penvis. That is a FLIR. And that FLIR is tied directly to your eyeball. Now front-seater right, and, and uh, back-seater can, can use either system. It's just like a flick of the switch, and they do different things. But bottom line is they both have a FLIR. And if you're flying at night, you turn on the FLIR to your, your, um, your HDU, you have that FLIR image in your right eye. And it's as if your right eye is sitting on the front of the aircraft, which is about 10 feet in front of you at this point and a few feet below you. Um, it is very difficult to get used to and they make it the absolute most horrible experience to learn how to use it um, with they do something called the bag and so what they do is during the during daylight hours in, in, uh, in your aircraft qualification course, they put you in the back seat and it is completely covered in this like tarp. Um, there is zero light coming into the cockpit. Um, in fact, they even give you a roll of tape. and They're like, you need to close the door, look for any light spots and fill them up because it will mess you up. You want it completely blacked out and you go fly like that. And you're only using your eyepiece, using the fleer. And again, the guy in the front seat, it's broad daylight and he's just looking around and keeping you safe. Um, but they do that to you for, I guess we did probably like five hours of the bag uh, over the course of a week. Um, to get you to use that system, and you know, the first time I flew like that, I went home and I sat in a chair and I just stared at the ceiling for like an hour. You know, I couldn't even move. I was just, I felt disgusting. Um, the very next day, I, I I crushed the pizza afterwards. You know, it's not a huge deal. Um, it's like it,
2: it's like using VR for the first time.
0: Yeah, I imagine it's a lot like using VR. It's it's very disorienting um, in some respects because again, it is so detached from you, and that's where I think people get this the idea of looking at two different things. Because yeah, if you turn, if I turn my head 90 degrees to the left and I'm looking with my right and my left eye, well, then my view is going to look very different because it looks like my right eye is 10 feet to the right of my left eye. And you're going to get this very different view of things. But when you're looking at things dead on or a little bit to the left or right, it's really not a big deal. Um, and a lot of times if, if it bothers you, especially when you're looking down, so you can essentially look down through the aircraft because, you know, if I'm coming in the land, Um, I'll turn my head down Well, my left eye is looking at my knees, you know, or the cyclic or something like that. But my right eye is looking at the ground that can be disorienting. Just close your left eye. I I landed. I don't know how many times just close my left eye and just come in like a pirate, you know? So it's not hard.
2: (laughs) Did you yell yar when you landed? (laughs)
0: That's right. (laughs) We did have talk like
2: a pirate day in Iraq when I was a Kiowa guy. That's a whole different story. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty cool. That sounds a lot like, uh, we've seen some images or video or whatever of the, the f-35 system too where you're looking through the cockpit through the FLIR or whatever yeah. that is
0: yeah and I don't know how you know I've not even seen any video of that I, I'm I'm assuming there's like little cameras all over it or something some sort of map yeah yeah. yeah but it's 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 wild stuff and I mean the Apache's technology is not new I mean that stuff is is pretty old so uh but it's still pretty cool and and you definitely feel like you're the last starfighter when you're wearing that big helmet
1: it's awesome. Uh, let me go back to Kiowa because uh, on, on the Facebook there are some question or two questions. I'll just read it. Uh, it. Says, "How is a pop-up maneuver completed in the Kiowa when carrying out a tick?" That's the question which I quote because I'm not entirely sure pop, How is pop a pop-up? up pop up maneuver.
0: Yeah, uh, I guess he's talking about a bump. Um, I assume that's what the question is. So a bump. Is what we refer to as if you're flying towards the target. Um, So, how do I start this? All right, so what you worry about is is what's called the beaten zone, right? So, your rounds hitting the ground, and and you guys I'm sure can visualize this. If I'm at a very shallow um, angle and I shoot a bullet, it doesn't take much um, deviation up or down for that bullet to have a very dramatic impact on the target, right? If I just raise just a tiny bit, i could miss the target and overshoot it quite a bit versus if i come in at a very steep angle um pretty much all my rounds are going to hit where i want because i'm pointing downward and and you know i'm i'm, I'm creating what's called a smaller beaten zone so obviously flying around at five six hundred feet is not a good idea because that's a perfect range for people to shoot at you with rifles and stuff so you for us, we would either fly really low or we would fly really high, you know, above, above a thousand feet or so. I know that doesn't sound very high, but for helicopters, that's, that's high. Um, And so a a bump would be essentially, if I'm in that low profile, I'm right above the trees and my target is, you know, ahead of me, I'm going to fly towards him, And when I get to, for a Kiowa, my gosh, it's been forever, but you know, I'd say like a K, a K and a half kilometer, um, I'm going to nose it up. You know, I've got all this forward airspeed. So I'm cruising, you know, 90, 100 knots, whatever I can can do. And I'm going to pitch up, you know, 30 degrees, let's say. And I'm going to trade that airspeed for altitude. So I'm going to climb up a couple hundred feet. I'm still moving towards the target. And now I'm going to nose it over. And I'm going to trade all that airspeed back or all that altitude back for airspeed. But I'm also pointing down at the target. So now I've got a much smaller beaten zone. I'm presenting myself as a target for a lot less time. I, I shoot, and then, you know, preferably before I overfly the target, I turn away in a different direction, and I, I zoom away, and again, I've, now I've built up all that airspeed again. So you, you only present yourself for, you know, a, f- a few seconds. So I, I think that's what he's asking.
1: Probably, thanks. And, and the other question was, what was the, was the Kiowa's feature you liked the most?
0: What did I like the most about the Kiowa? Yeah. Um, it's like a little sports car. Like it's not fast in the in the sense that you know it's it's the slowest helicopter out of you know the four main army helicopters. Um, but I always tell people speed is relative, right? So if you're doing a hundred knots and you're right on top of the trees, that it feels pretty fast. Um, I remember I flew an Air Force JTAC one time as a like an incentive flight or something. We were we were showing guys off, and um, and I was flying this guy. We were really low. And he's just, you know, we've got no doors on. So the wind is just blowing, you know. And he looks out and he's like, man, this is so much cooler than when I, when I rode an F-16. And I was like, yes, I'm keeping that phrase forever. Um, and I and I understood what he meant because I'm sure he was, I'm sure he had a blast on F-16. I'd love to go flying one. But, you know, at 10,000, 12,000 feet, you're going 500 knots. Okay. Like there's nothing to relate that to other than. I guess maybe some clouds or just looking at your you know your, your your airspeed indicator but when you're down low like that and you're cruising you're going pretty fast and so the, the kiowa it felt faster than it was and it was also just very maneuverable in fact when we would fly with apaches as our wingman we would do these um what they used to call pink teams back in vietnam so you'd have like a kiowa with an apache flying with them and the Apache would cover them uh we were so maneuverable that the Apaches would routinely lose sight of us. And so we started uh, painting uh, stripes on top of our uh, blades so that they could see the contrast of our blades spinning and and more easily pick us back up. Because we'd do these tight turns and they'd be like, oh, I I lost you. I don't know where you're at. Which is not what you want your wingman to take.
1: (laughs) All right. Uh, Just looking through the questions, I think, oh, there's one more, but it would put us back to the beginning. So uh, the... the, um... Tank Commander. Uh, have you played uh, combined arms much?
0: Yeah, I mean I have it. Um I don't want to say it's useless, but it's <laughs> it it is it has limited utility. Um limited. I, I you know, I like it for the JTAC stuff. You know, I've never been a JTAC, but I, I like to pretend and, and do all that stuff. Um but beyond that, you know, it is not a tank simulator. And I think I, I think you guys were talking to um Uh, Wagner about this the other day on your last episode, weren't you? And then you guys talk about combined arms with him.
1: Yeah, he said that it's it's on the to do list. uh, Yeah, Uh,
0: and 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 it made sense because I think he was talking about how you know it kind of came as a byproduct, if you will, of of some commercial you know grade stuff that they were working on. Um, And so I get it. And it you know it will never be a flagship module for them. So I totally understand that there there's a you know. There's only so much you're going to get out of putting a lot of effort into it. Um, I would like it to be a little bit more user-friendly for sure. Um, I think as a JTAC simulator, it's probably pretty neat and it gives you some cool capabilities, but like, I don't jump in it and be like, oh, cool, I'm going to be an M1 guy again. Like, nope, that's just not the right module for that.
1: For me, the perfect example of perfect thing would be to marry DCS with uh, ARMA 3. If yeah. you took the best things from both. Sure. Created one big game. ah. So what's the aircraft you'd like to see in DCS that's not there yet?
0: Super Cobra. I know everyone probably expects me to say Apache, but I've already flown the Apache. I want to fly a Cobra. <laughs> um, no, I, I think I think that would be a cool addition. Um, and and I would with that, I would like to see the Huey get sort of modernized.
1: But isn't Cobra on the to-do list? It was supposed to be done, but I think they pushed it back now. Uh, but I don't know if it's a super Cobra or just a Cobra. I don't really know the difference. Yeah, at. I
0: don't either. I I hope it's not a regular Cobra. Just uh, I, well, it kind of goes back to your comment you said, and I think you and I talked about in the past. Is you know, okay, if we're gonna go whole hog on Vietnam, then sure, that's fine. Give me a Phantom. Give me a Cobra. I've already got the Huey. You know, <laughs> give me a map. Um, but if we're gonna kind of stay in the realm that that DCS seems to exist, which is you know late nineties two thousands frame uh, then I want, I want a Cobra, and I want multi-crew. Like I, I need multi-crew to work for helicopters because that's the thing. A lot of fighters are single seat and I get it. And that's great for them. Helicopters. It is, it is hard work. And I have flown single pilot, meaning I've flown with guys who really didn't know what they were doing. Um, that, you know, to some, to some extent it's not doable. Um, you, you gotta, it's, it is a two person job to fly a combat helicopter.
1: I think it's coming for, for the hue at least, uh, or it's already in, uh, no, it probably is not there yet, but it, it's coming. It's yeah, coming I think through.
0: they, didn't they say something like when the Hind comes out, it's going to be, you yeah. know, it's going to be part of the package deal. You know, we'll see. Yeah,
1: so. you know, will also be interesting.
3: Yeah, no, I was just curious, you know, for a lot of uh, uh, pilots, uh, DCS isn't really something that they gravitate towards. Um, what about it for you do you like?
0: I, I think what I gravitate towards is, how well you can simulate when you have a group of of other players, of other like minded mm-hmm. players. Um, you know, I started playing DCS before DCS World was a thing. You know, I, I had the the A10 module and I had Lomac and all this stuff. Um, and of course, you know, like any good American, I wanted to fly A10s because they're just mm-hmm. awesome. Uh, and so it was good for that. But then I drifted away for a lot of years and at some point I came across like a YouTube video, you know, this was years ago, a YouTube video of these dudes flat playing multiplayer and they were talking on the radio and they were going through all these procedures and stuff. And I was like, Holy cow. Like there, there's a whole community for this. And it got me back into the game. And, and, and since then I never left. Um, so, so that's what I like about it is the fact that I, and and guys that think like me can get onto a server and, and actually do the stuff that I'm, you know, that I had to do overseas and without, you know, the fear of it, um, mm-hmm. of it going bad. Um, the, you know, there's just nothing particularly f- amazing about the mod, about the, the game itself other than, you know, it's very well done, obviously with the recreation of, of capabilities and systems and how you interact with them. Um, you know, visually stunning. I mean, I'm an older guy, so I grew up with some really crappy looking flight sims. Mm-hmm. Um, so I you know and I can accept a lot of graininess and things like that like I don't need it to look like movie quality but DCS looks great. Um but yeah for me it's it's not the game it's the community around the game um yeah. that I that I keep coming back to. Okay.
1: I think you're spot on. I mean it's it's a very nice sandbox we have beautiful modules very well recreated but in the end of the day well there's it's only so much fun flying around without having any extra content and i think multiplayer and people that are really into it and trying to recreate the real life operations etc uh it's it's a very important aspect of that yeah
0: well and, and that's the the next challenge right is getting people outside of the single player bubble because i was in that for a long time um and you're right there's only so much fun you can have with it when you play single player and there's only so many campaigns you know that you and others have created um But I can hardly play single player anymore because I'm so used to now with being able to actually talk to somebody on the radio and and coordinate. That's the fun. Like for me, that is the fun. I can fly around on our server for two hours and just point out targets. I don't even have to drop a bomb. I just enjoy calling in an airstrike. I enjoy telling helicopters, hey, move to this grid and look this direction. Um, That's what keeps me coming back.
3: Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, and uh, not to speak for jabbers, but I think Part of what he said, <clears throat> excuse me, previously was that multiplayer for him is is where it's at, and then I think that I think to your point though there is this um, you know how do you get folks from single player to multiplayer, and I think that's part of the challenge, myself included.
0: Well, and that's it's funny that you bring that up because that's my next goal is to kind of focus on how. How do we bring people to that other side? Because I think if you just log on to a random server in DCS, it is very intimidating. I hell, it's intimidating to me. And I've flown in combat. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's I don't want to get on there because I know I'm gonna get my face wrecked by some dude with an AMRAM at you know 20 miles or whatever. Um and so that and that's what I've tried to create with my server on low-level hell, is it's not a PvP wreck each other experience but it is a coordination exercise it is everyone's on the same team you have a pretty substantial enemy you have to work together and you've got to coordinate um and and that's what i, I want to expose people to because there i saw some staggering number where it was like you know 80 percent of dcs players only play single player you know or some crazy number like that and they're they're missing out and they don't know that they're missing out um because they're not getting the right exposure to multiplayer they're getting they're getting the bad stuff that yeah they're not ready for and i don't blame them for it they but they need to they need to see a different side of it
3: yeah no that's an interesting point because i know that in my first experiences in multiplayer was to your point getting on there and then if i survived 10 minutes right you know uh i felt pretty good and that's not and that's not saying much frankly but you know But that's part of, you know, part of the growth, I think, of, uh, of your skills. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, but part of it, I think, is also getting to be part of that server community and understanding how to participate together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of times guys are just intimidated because they don't, they just don't want to sound stupid. You know what I mean? Like they don't want to make the wrong call or they don't want to fly the thing what they think is wrong and. You know, and that's really what we try to cultivate over at My Server is is there's plenty of guys that are more than willing to help you. Or, you know, it doesn't matter. Just make the wrong call in SRS, it's fine. We can work through it, and there's plenty of guys that can a- offer some expertise. But it is not a spam ram situation or, or anything like that. So <laughs>
1: I think also the other side of it is that you can actually do whatever you want. You want to go to a server where you do that and you just play, you goof around. It's fine. You can do it. Or you can find this virtual squadron that has its own SOPs and whatever. And then you can do that as well. So it's, it's, I'm sure everyone could find something for them in the multiplayer.
3: Did, did you also mention that uh, you're going to be working on a podcast or you have a podcast?
0: Yeah. So we just started a podcast. Um, it is called the low level hell podcast. Um, it is very similar in, in vein and scope to the fighter pilot podcast. Um, you know, it's just focused on helicopters and and really air to ground operations. Like we want to expand as we go, but, um, you know, kind of to, to the point that we were talking about earlier, um, that, I think there's so much that people don't know or understand when it comes to helicopters, you know, and and you don't have to look very far in the media to to have at least some understanding of, of the fighter community, right? There's movies, there's podcasts, there's, there's books, there's all kinds of things. But when you look at the helicopter side, it's, it's very, you know, that there's not a lot there. Um, And so I've kind of used this, this situation and, and people I know and, and we've kind of created you know, use it as a springboard to, to build this podcast and so we've just did our fourth uh, episode in fact I'm recording the the fifth one tomorrow uh, we're gonna talk about Navy flight school with a guy and um, we're just trying to expose people to to what it is like so that we can tell those stories you know like I intimated to of you know I'm taking off and somebody's shooting at me. I mean that that's probably very big news to people. You know, they're like, "Oh, really? That stuff like that happened?" It happened all the time, um, and and there are just some crazy wild stories that so many helicopter pilots have have gone through that to the point that it's almost not even a story anymore. It's just it's 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 Tuesday to them. You know what I mean? Um, and so we really want to get that word out and, and just share that information with people. Um, just just so that everyone just understands like th- these are things that, that are happening and are happening quite a bit and and are interesting so
1: it, speaking about your podcast so uh was supposed to ask about some some cool uh, uh sea stories as we call them or Jello calls them yeah. but perhaps let's let's uh let's leave it for the people to go visit a low uh level hell podcast and uh, sure. check them out by themselves um and i think with that we'll wrap up this one so thank you very very much for for taking the time being with us and very interesting discussion we had uh with of course we'll we'll put a link to your podcast in our uh show notes and oh and looking forward maybe doing it again when the ko is out
0: yeah i look forward to it in two weeks in two it's weeks like coming out right every, every time <laughs> yeah and before anyone asks no i don't know exactly when it's coming out so I, I always get that question i don't know
1: probably nobody knows oh we know it's not this year that's what we know that's right we know it's not 2020 <laughs> The yes. all right thank you very much uh thank you for being here thanks guys for listening and see you around for the next one thanks a lot much appreciated thank good. thank you bye-bye
0: Thanks for listening to Air Combat Sim. Don't forget to subscribe or tell a friend about it. If you have a question, idea for an episode, or a special guest you'd like us to invite, feel free to reach out on Facebook, Discord, or via email. Air Combat Sim was brought to you by VBR Productions.